Well, look, I don't know what you make of um, claims of hope in today's day and age. That's kind of the um, currency that politicians often deal in. And I often think the politicians have a particularly hard time because on one level, as a generation or as a culture, we long for hope and we're very idealistic. Slogans like making poverty history, uh, making an end to terminal diseases, alleviating um, you know, third world debt. You know, these type of slogans actually animate us and there's a huge amount of activity towards those things as a culture. But at the same time, as a culture, we're very cynical about whether we'll actually be able to achieve those things. Back in 2008, in the Obama campaign, when he was first campaigning on the, um, on the campaign trail, he um, led with the slogan, Change You Can Believe In. And it seemed to capture the tide of emotion that was swelling behind him. But very quickly, it started to show in the opinion polls and in the um, focus groups that actually it wasn't really cutting it, that people found it a bit naive, and they didn't think that it was actually a slogan they could believe in. And so what they changed it to later on in the campaign was the change we need. Now think of the difference between those, change you can believe in and the change we need. One political commentator you know, made the remark that it was effectively saying the minimum amount of change we can sell to you and that you're likely to believe in. You see how the cynicism started to come in. And of course, Obama's presidency in many ways was a story of a journey from idealism to the realism. Uh, it's interesting that commenting on this in the Veritas Forum, there was a discussion between Peter Thiel, who's the um, PayPal um, co-inventor back in 1999 and you know, one of the most uh, uh, highly um, valued people in the world of technology in the world today, and Bishop Tom Wright, an unusual combination, but they were talking about this idea of hope in the context of the resurrection. And Bishop Tom Wright commented, he said, yes, we used to chant, what do we want? Revolution. When do we want it? Now. He said, in this generation, that would never work. What we would chant now is, what do we want? gradual change. When do we want it? In due course. <laughs> There's this tension, right? We, we long for hope. We long for, you know, the big picture ideals, an end to poverty, an end to war, doing away with disease. We long for real hope. And yet we're cynical because so many people have told it to us and we think, is this just more spin, more fake news? And in the context of that, the resurrection can often look to modern examiners, modern readers, if they actually give it enough time to read it, as a bit of ancient fake news, the original spin, as it were. I wonder if that's your perception. I wonder even if you're a Christian, you would come here, you'd say that sometimes you feel that those who critique it with that, um, you know, with that particular line actually have a point. You know, sometimes you find yourself doubting, is this really true? Can it be true, or is it just naive make-believe? I want us to look at three areas, the facts of the resurrection, the realism of the resurrection, and then lastly, the wonder of the resurrection, see that it fulfills both those criteria. It is hope, and it is hope you can believe in. It is real, but it is hope-filled. It is both those things come together. Let's look at the facts of the resurrection, and what I like to um, do is to call these stubborn facts. There are some facts which are particularly stubborn, that is, the more you push them, the more you push against them, the more they stand up to scrutiny. And if the resurrection is to actually do what it claims that it will do, to be real and to transform our lives, they must be stubborn facts. I think there are three stubborn facts, often called the three pillars of evidence for the resurrection that we see here. Look down with me at verse 1. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The first stubborn fact is the empty tomb. The body was not there in the tomb. It was where they expected it to be. It was where it should be. It was where the Romans wanted it to be and the Jewish leaders wanted it to be and had invested lots of energy in keeping it there, but it was not there. 
and indeed it has never been found. As an interesting detail, but a very important one, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 65, we're told a group of Roman guards is posted. The word in the original Greek for that group of guards, sometimes translated guard, is custodia. It means a group. So what we're being told here is that a number of Roman guards, a group of them, Roman soldiers, the most efficient fighting force the world had at that point, are posted outside the tomb to guard the tomb, lest someone should come and steal the body. Let's just be really clear. If you deserted your duty as a Roman soldier, you would be killed. So they're on pain of death for the neglect of their duty. But the body is gone. Sometimes it's said, oh, the disciples probably stole the body. Really? You know, the disciples, a ragtag group of cowards who've run away, 11 of them, up against highly trained military soldiers? They'd overpower them? How does that work? They've run away. A stubborn fact. And of course, if the Romans had, you know, been overpowered, then they could have just dismissed the myth of the resurrection by saying, no, 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 there was a fight, the disciples overpowered us, that's a bit embarrassing, but they've got the body, and so that puts a quash to it. But nothing in the Roman records that document the death of Jesus, but nothing about the stealing of the body. A stubborn fact. Secondly, the eyewitnesses. Look down at who we're talking about as the eyewitnesses. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, verse 1, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. And we're told who the women are a little bit later on. Look at verse 10. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the others with them who told this to the apostles. Again, if you're making up something, you know, you don't tend to use people's names who are verifiable. You leave it vague in general. That's kind of rule 101 when you're a naughty child and you're making up an excuse. Keep it vague. Otherwise, they can fact-check you. But we're told who it is. And verse 5, in their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men, this is angels, said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? So they experienced both the empty tomb and an angelic appearance. And later on, the women are to experience the um, resurrection of Jesus himself. They're going to see the risen Lord. And then we get Peter in verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves. So we get the names of these eyewitnesses. And later on, in chapter 24, we're going to get the resurrection appearances to these eyewitnesses, to the disciples. And did you know that the resurrection appearances happened over a period of 40 days to many different people in many different contexts? Now, you might say, okay, well, maybe it's mass hysteria. But mass hysteria only works in a one-off, not to different people with the same type of account at different times and places. You say, okay, but they want him to be alive, so it's, it's a, a delusion, a kind of collective delusion. Really? Apparently, he ate some fish with them. They had to do the washing up of that. Don't you think that a delusion kind of goes away when you're doing the washing up? Here is a person who appeared to up to 500 people at one time, it claims. And the amazing thing is this document, as with many of the New Testament documents we now know, was in wide circulation in the Jerusalem area within a generation of when the events happened. So again, you can fact check it. You just go and ask Mary or Joanna or the disciples and say, did this happen? They're there. They're named. Again, why would you preach the resurrection in the place where you can verify the facts if it's a lie? It makes no sense. Take it hundreds of miles away. Let it gather some momentum there. Then bring it back to Jerusalem 100 years later or so when everyone's died. That's how you do it. That's not how they did it. The empty tomb, the eyewitnesses. Wolfhart Pannenberg says about these two facts, the early Christians could not possibly have preached the resurrection of Christ publicly and successfully unless both the empty tomb and the many eyewitnesses actually existed. 
and we know that they did preach the resurrection publicly and very successfully by the growth of the early church. Lastly, I want the third stubborn fact is the changed life of the disciples. Look at Peter. Peter got up and ran to the tomb in verse 12. Now, this is very significant because in Luke's gospel, we haven't seen Peter since the end of chapter 22, where he had told that he denies Jesus three times and weeps and runs away. He's not been on the scene. He's not at the crucifixion. There's only one disciple at the crucifixion apart from the women, and that's John. All the other disciples have run away. Peter is deeply ashamed. And yet something brings him back. He starts to wonder. And then if we follow the story arc of Peter, it is remarkable. In 45 days after this, he's going to stand in Jerusalem, this cowering wreck, this Jesus denier, and he's going to boldly proclaim in the temple courts and keep proclaiming even when he's imprisoned and beaten that Jesus is risen from the dead. A month and a half? What changes? How do you get a man from being a coward to being courageous, from being faithless to being the great apostle of the faith. What changes? Put those three stubborn facts together, the empty tomb, the eyewitnesses, and the changed life of the disciples, and you have three key pillars that point you to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the facts of the resurrection. Well, we've looked at the facts, stubborn facts. Now I want to consider the realism of the resurrection and look at what I would call awkward facts, because there are certain things here that are just very awkward. In other words, you would not make them up if you were trying to fabricate this account. They are far too odd, awkward, and strange, and yet they just ring with realism. The first one is that the women were the first eyewitnesses, not the men. Don't forget, this is a patriarchal culture. This is a culture dominated by the men. Women can't even speak in public amongst Orthodox Jews at the time. Their testimony is not considered valid in a court of law unless it's corroborated by men. So yeah, of course, if you're making it up, you'd lead with them as the eyewitnesses. That would be ludicrous. And yet, the women are there, aren't they? Because as we all know, when the going really gets tough, men, the women are there. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices, not the disciples. There they are in the half-light, being brave, not knowing what they would find, doing what they often did, following Jesus faithfully, but not the disciples. Notice the light that the disciples are casting. The first um, awkward fact is that the women were the eyewitnesses, not the disciples to start off with. Then verse 11, notice what we're told about the disciples. In verse 11, they did not believe the women. And look at how condescending it is. This has happened many times in history, much to the man's um, problem, because their words seem to them like nonsense. The women speaking truth, the men saying it's nonsense. Again, it hardly paints the disciples in great light. Not, he's risen, the disciples say, fantastic, we were just waiting for him, we were in a prayer consultation. Nothing like that. The disciples don't believe them. That is very awkward when one of the key tenets of Christianity will be the need for belief. It paints the disciples in an astonishingly bad light. Why would you make that up? It's far too awkward. And lastly, verse 6, he is not here, he has risen. You know, the nature of the resurrection is a very specific kind. Uh, there were, general resurrection was talked about in religion at that time. It was a kind of spiritual resurrection, a kind of ethereal plane that some Eastern religions would talk about. Or the Jews believed in a resurrection at the end of time, 
when God would judge the world and there would be a general resurrection. This is a very different type of resurrection that no one had a category for. They claimed that a dead corpse, that if you excuse me being a little bit crude, that was rotting, rose to life and started walking around and was physical, you could touch it. No one, and you can look at the records, no one was expecting that. Bishop Tom Wright says about this, unlike the Jewish beliefs we glanced at earlier from the very beginning, Christian reuse of resurrection language is astonishingly free of vague and generalized speculation. It is crisp and clear. Resurrection means going through death, coming out the other side into a new mode of existence. In other words, this resurrection is just, again, not what anyone was expecting, and it's certainly not what you make up. If you make up a myth, talk about a spiritual resurrection. Jesus is in your heart. One day he might rise from the dead in the future. That's easy to sell, because, again, you can't knock it down. An ethereal resurrection plane, where's that? You'll have to wait for it, but believe in it now. But he's really risen. He's walking around. He's eating broiled fish. He's there offering people to poke his sides and put his hand in their wounds. Don't talk about that. It's far too gritty. It's far too realistic. Now, what's the point of all of that? Here's the point. If the resurrection is to have currency for our lives, it has to be an engagement with reality, not an escape from reality. And I put it to you that the realism of the resurrection speaks of that. This is something which is so very down to earth, men not believing women and being condescending. That's a, that's a big story we've all encountered, right? It's just so very true to human nature. The people who should believe losing their belief and faltering at the key moment. The place of encounter with the author of life in a place of death and darkness. You see, this is the resurrection. It's not an escape from the reality of life. It's an engagement with the reality of life. And that's vital because if it's going to mean anything for our lives, it has to mean that God understands and engages with life when it gets difficult. Darkness, despair, unbelief, disease, death. These are the normalities of life which we would rather wish they weren't so, but they are. And does God just kind of smile benignly, but is aloof and disengaged from it? No, no, no. God steps into our reality and meets us in the midst of the mess of that reality. That is what the resurrection is all about. You know, we often try to cope with difficulties, don't we, by wrapping them in platitudes, and they feel good at the time, but they're a bit like having a sweet. They leave you wanting something more afterwards. He's gone to a better place. You can trust me, I'm a different breed of politician. This generation will be different. A moment's stubborn examination, and we realize that they're platitudes and they won't cut it in the real world. But the resurrection is vital because it is an engagement with reality. It's not a sugarcoating of reality, the realism of the resurrection. Lastly, and probably most significantly alongside this, the wonder of the resurrection. Look, I'm conscious as I talk about facts and realism, there are certain types of personalities in the room who'll be saying, well, look, that's fine, but it just leaves me a little bit cold, to be honest. I was doing a talk at Christmas when I was talking about the, um, the reality of Jesus' birth, and I talked a bit about the facts around it and how it's placed in space, time, and history, and you could verify it. And I had a, a student come up to me who'd invited a number of his friends from his hockey team along, and he said, um, he said look, I, they, they kind of enjoyed the talk. They were enjoying it, that is, until the bit when he started talking about the facts. They're artists, and they would much rather you just stayed on the wonder, the joy, and the kind of singing, you know. But when he started talking about facts, it turned them all cold. 
And look, I kind of get that. You know, I'm a bit of a romantic in the sense that I, I love reading the great stories. You know, I love getting wrapped up in the music in the moment. And, but at the same time, that's not enough, is it? Because that's just escapism. And escapism is fine for a time, but you have to wake up from it. But the thing about this is that it's not only true, but it's also wonderful. And when you bring those two things together, what you've got, as J.R.R. Tolkien once called, is a true myth. In other words, you've got all of the beauty of the best stories, all of the wonder of the finest symphonies, and you've got the truth that can cut it in real day-to-day -day life. Look at the wonder with me. See the response of both the women and Peter is all about wonder, verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Look down at verse 12. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. Bending over, he saw the strips of linen lying by themselves, and he went away wondering to himself what had happened. In English, we have um, two uses of the word wonder, and actually these are two different um, words in the original Greek. In verse 4, the word for wonder is a bit more like I'm puzzled, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. That is the word in the original Greek that the women are going through here. They're trying to make sense. What is happening here? Uh, is it true? Is what I think happening really happening? Verse 12 is a different type of word. It's the wonder and amazement. It's the awe and wonder word. Peter is awestruck. He's amazed. He's kind of he realizes it's true, and he's trying to work through the implications for his life. You see the difference? Well, the resurrection does both to us. It causes us to puzzle at first, and then as we start to engage with the reality of it, we start to be awestruck and amazed. We start to think, if this is true, as Helen said, this changes everything. Well, what would it mean for a moment if Jesus really rose from the dead? Well, I put it to you that it would mean this. It would mean our deepest longings and our most important intuitions about the world are validated. What do I mean by that? There isn't a human being on earth who, when they are functioning properly, doesn't long for good to defeat evil, for life to triumph over death, for light to push back the darkness. There isn't a human being on earth who, when they're functioning properly, doesn't long for that. And in fact, our every default intuition backs that up, which is why we describe things often with putting the, the letters D-E before something when they're not the way. Depression, it should not be like this. You know, we, we're saying these things because we're saying this is not the way the world should be. We don't want the world to be like this. We want the world to be better. I mean, think if you're reading a bedtime story to your child and you end with it and they all lived miserably ever after. Sleep well the child wouldn't sleep. It'd be like this. That's not just for children. Films that end on a deeply sour note with just the hero dying but no result of that positively tend not to do very well at the box office. Our favorite books and stories as adults as well as children end with hope. Speak about hope. Speak about joy, happiness, celebration. Of course, if it's only with only hope, joy, and celebration without an engagement with darkness. It's naive and it's too sugar-coated, but we want them to end there. Well, on what basis do we believe that? That's the question. That is the way we want the world to be. Our songs sing about it. Our books write about it. Our plays perform it. Our films exhibit it. On what basis do we really believe that is true? Don't you see? If the resurrection really happened, 
It's all true. Life wins. Life beats death. Death is not the final answer. Darkness will be pushed back. Light will come through. Hope in the midst of despair. That's the resurrection story. And it's not just wishful thinking, because remember, there are stubborn facts and there's realism there. But if you just believe that the world is random, chaotic, chance, then your intuitions could be a horrible trick. You might be like the person who holds up a compass and says, please let it point south, please let it point south, and looks down and sees that it will always point north. Are your intuitions like that? Are you the wonky compass in a world that is deeply depressing and dark? Do you want to believe that? Or do you want to believe that death is defeated, that life wins, that joy is the final answer, that there's a resurrection from the dead, and that hope is concrete and sure and more wonderful than you can imagine? If the resurrection is true, all of those intuitions are validated. Can I push you, if you're a guest here, just to say, if the resurrection is not true, on what basis do you hold your deepest longings and your most firmly held intuitions? Well, when C.S. Lewis was thinking about this, and here's a man who wrote his autobiography called Surprised by Joy because he came to be surprised by the reality of real joy in the universe through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, he wrote, wrote this. As myth transcends thought, incarnation transcends myth. The heart of Christianity is like a myth, but it's a myth which also becomes fact. The old myths of a dying God without ceasing to be a myth comes down from the heaven of legend and imagination to the earth of history in a particular date, in a particular place, followed by definable historical consequences. By becoming fact, it does not cease to be myth. That is the miracle of it all. To be truly Christian, we must both assent to the historical facts and also receive the myth with the same imaginative embrace we accord to all our favorite myths. The one is hardly more necessary than the other. In other words, he's saying, in this story of the resurrection, myth, the great stories we love, and fact and engagement with reality come together, and when they do, it changes everything. Well, as I close, how might you respond? Look, I don't know where you are on the spectrum of verse 4 to verse 12. Verse 4 is the women puzzling about it, what does this mean? Could this be true? If you're there, thanks so much for coming along today. Can I encourage you, do what the women did, which is engage, ask your questions, push into it. Don't run away. Push into it. Because if it's true, it will stand up to scrutiny. And if it's not, you'll be able to disprove it. That's the great thing about truth. We're never afraid here at St. James of asking questions. Because if it's true, it will stand up to scrutiny. It might be, though, you're a bit closer to where Peter is in verse 12. You've got the wonder of amazement. And somewhere on that journey, you're working through the implications for, our, for your life. In fact, one of the ways to summarize the Christian life is to work through the implications of the resurrection for our lives. That's what we're all doing here. And as you do that, can I encourage you that if the resurrection is true, of course, it will meet a life-changing type of change. You know, death to life doesn't suddenly mean that a few tweaks to your life. It means it changes everything. And that's both a wonderful thing and sometimes a frightening thing. But you know what? If it's true, then those changes will be the type of changes that will take you in the right direction. So don't resist them. Be like Peter. Let the story arc run its full course in your life and see where it might take you. Because it took him to some pretty interesting places. Well, thanks for listening. I'm going to pray and then I'll hand back to Helen as we close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the resurrection. We thank you that it doesn't come across and indeed it's not intended to be a myth only, Lord God, but it comes across and is intended to be eyewitness testimony, facts that stand up to scrutiny, realism that engages with reality. And yet at the same time, Lord, it's not just facts and realism that is cold and austere, but it's clothed with the most amazing implications. Death being defeated by life, good overcoming evil, light pushing back the darkness. Help us to work out where we are on the spectrum of this wonder and help us to be filled with awe and amazement and to work out the implications for our life. And we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.